0: everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. My name is Corey, and on this show, we aim to answer questions that pop up as we're reading through the Bible because we are reading through the Bible this year. We also aim to answer some of your questions as well, or at least discuss them. Uh, I'm also I'm here with Matlock. I, I'm realizing <laughs> yes. I'm talking away and I have not introduced this is my husband, How Matlock. Yeah, Yeah, so we like to talk about Bible questions that come up. Um, Now, our reading for this week was Psalm 50 to 79, but we're not actually going to be discussing questions from the Psalms.
1: Well, we had no questions between (laughs) 50 to 79 at all. No viewer
0: questions came up, but we do have a lot of backlog questions that we didn't get to earlier on in the year. So this is kind of a random assortment of questions um, mainly spanning Genesis to Second Samuel.
1: Right, because we had a lot of the times we would tape the show, yeah. and then we would get questions related to that episode
0: before it aired, but right. after we had. Already so taped we have it, a yes. whole
1: bunch of questions today. We have nine questions yeah. in total, which is you know a lot. Normally we have about like five or something. So we're doubling up, so we're going to see if we can do this. We're
0: just going to kind of pop so, through them. As, right,
1: yeah. which means that today there's no big question.
0: No big question. No big question. Just l- lots of questions.
1: Unless prepared. I have a surprise big question at the end.
0: Oh, that surprise. would be unusual. Yeah,
1: maybe, we'll see. We, we had we'll see.
0: Not, <laughs> not prepared for that. We'll see what happens. <laughs> okay. okay. I'm going to ask you the first one that Sure. Now. We're jumping into Genesis at, right at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Terence asks, was Eve created on the sixth day of creation?
1: Right. Okay, so let's go back to Genesis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, was I not supposed to ask you that question? Yeah. <laughs> I think I was. I'm pretty That's sure good. I was. Genesis right. one.
1: Genesis one. So man was made, right? Yep. One second, open up. So
0: I think I think the issue comes here. It's uh, because
1: Adam fell asleep. Is that the idea? Because no, Adam fell asleep. So the
0: idea the the I What people struggle with is that Genesis 1 seems to give a very definite time period of seven days of creation. Yeah. So on the sixth day of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, um, uh, verse 24 to 27, we see this is the sixth day of creation. And in verse 26, it says... Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, yes. so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, That's over right. the livestock and wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In yeah. the image of God, he created them. Right. Male and female, he created right. them. God blessed them right and said to them be fruitful and increase in number obviously adam can't do that by himself okay so we see here in genesis 1 on the sixth day it's implying that mankind collectively male and female adam and eve yes created but then in genesis 2 the bible kind of backtracks and here's where a lot of people will say that these are completely two different creation accounts that are just mushed together and are contradictory so in genesis chapter 2 uh Verse four, it says, this is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created, when the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And so it goes on to describe man, uh, Adam's creation, and then how God uh, had Adam go in a deep sleep and create you know, yes. the rib. And before that, he had brought the animals to Adam to name and Adam became distressed because all of the animals came in pairs. They all had mates, but he didn't have anyone. Right. Um, and so then God creates Eve, and Adam names her woman on because, the sixth day.
1: Right. And, and, so, and, right.
0: So, but the idea is, this seems like a lot to happen okay, on the sixth right. day. So, did this happen on the sixth day, or well, was this an extension? I'm just going to
1: say it says what it says. It happened on the sixth day. He fell into his sleep. It doesn't imply nighttime. Right. He just fell into deep sleep. Right. Call an afternoon nap. I don't care. But the, he fell into his sleep, and then you know Eve came out was. Uh, created out of Adam's rib. Mm-hmm. So it says what it says. I feel like there's no reason to be like, oh, she was born on the seventh day, mm-hmm. like when God rested. I, I just don't think that there's a reason to. to yeah. And people yeah, will
0: I, fight over, you know, was this a literal 24 hour day or was it a longer period right. time? And I think, I think, okay, those questions do have important implications, but I think for the purposes of the Bible, it's a bit redundant. I know some people are going to get annoyed with right. me saying that but um i i think the timeline in the bible at least is clear is that man and woman were created at the same time yes um adam a little bit earlier in order to show him that woman was not just another animal but was indeed right a human and 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 they needed to you know live and work together as a pair as a unit um, I think that's a pretty clear implication and purpose of Genesis one and two. So yeah, I think I I think it's very safe to say that Genesis one and two are working together to insinuate to show that right. Adam and Eve were both created. On a- the and if day. people
1: are worried about just like timeline, about Adam yeah. naming animals, um, just like just a just a literal reading of this doesn't imply that he's naming like ardvarks and like mice, differentiating between mice and rats and and gerbils. Right. Like like
0: it's not every. It's just broad categories, felines, like cats,
1: right? Like, like just broad categories. I think there's not that many broad categories. Mm -hmm. So even still, it's like, and it doesn't even have to be like, you know, every specific animal in the entire world is here. These are all the animals that are in Eden, Mm -hmm. right? It's not like the animals that are across the world are also here. Mm -hmm. So it's... It is what it is. Like, I, I don't see really a big deal with it, but I think that what's really important there is the theology behind him Absolutely. naming the animals. Yeah. That's what's important. Yeah. But also, too, once again, the, the timeline is kind of like, okay, it's this sixth day? Regardless of people's positions on whether it's literal or or, or figurative, okay, or even just an extended day or whatever, um, the point here is that they're, like you were saying, they were made at the same time. Yeah. And I, and it's, it, I, I don't Which think... it
0: only makes sense because right. it's not as if Humanity can survive with just an. I I kind of
1: laughed at the beginning because I said what was Eve created in the sixth day, and I when I first read the question, I thought I didn't for some reason read six. I read like seventh or something. Like on the the day afterwards, and I was like, wait a second. It says, "Is Adam like?" I was kind of, I kind of laughed because I was kind of confused about the question because gotcha. it clearly says she's mankind was made in day six. Gotcha. So I was like, "Well, it yeah, says but, yeah. that it is." So it's kind I don't of. Think,
0: I don't think that the longer narrative of Genesis two that goes in because right. we have Genesis one offering this broad outline of what happened, and then we have Genesis two zooming in onto day six on the creation of adam and eve and fleshing that out for us and we don't get a fleshed out version of all the other days but we do get a fleshed out version of day six which is pretty cool so yeah that's how i would look at it i don't think that they are competing narratives i really do think that one is zoomed out and gives you the broad and one is zoomed in and gives you the specific thing yeah
1: yeah yeah i think so too for sure so i
0: don't think there's a I really don't think there's
1: an issue there. Yeah, I, neither do I. Sixth day, so day, so yes. th- Let's move on then. Well, that's our answer. All right. <laughs> <I>
0: hope <laughs> the that answer helps, yes. Parents.
1: The answer is yes, yes. that's it. Okay, uh, Okay. so Genesis 15, uh, okay. there's a question related to this by Janice uh, T.Y. Mm-hmm. And she asks, what did it mean when God passes through the sacrifices Abraham made when querying about descendants from him? God takes responsibility of descendants breaking God's covenants, because he knows human, uh, humanity, for, human fragility? It, it's, yeah, right, So it's kind of a clunky question, but the idea here is that God's taking responsibility um, for human's fragility, is that true?
0: Okay, yes, and in multiple ways. So what we have in Genesis 15 is a covenant ceremony that God enacts with um, Abram. And Abram would have been really familiar with these covenant ceremonies. We know of them through archaeology and, and the reading and the interpretation of ancient texts from several different cultures in Mesopotamia, um, contemporary, earlier, and even after the time of Abram. And so essentially what would happen is a covenant would be struck and uh, sacrificial animals would be killed and cut in two. And then the the generally the lesser party. So if you were making a treaty with a king, um, you not being the king, the one in lesser authority, lesser power would walk between these animals while you were making this covenant. And the idea is that you would not only are you invoking the gods as witness through your sacrificial animals, but you are making a a pledge. May I become like one of these sacrificial animals dead like them if I go against the terms of this covenant of this treaty. So it was a really big deal. So Abram comes to God in distress. How, how is this going to be? I don't, I don't have children. So how are you going to make me this great nation? How are these promises going to come true? And so Um, God has Abraham prepare this covenant ceremony where he splits the animals in two. And then upon falling asleep, Abram sees in this dream uh, uh, a symbol of God, the smoking firepot. And God passes through the sacrificial animals. So he is saying, if I break this covenant, the immediate context is, if I break the treaties of this covenant... May I become like these sacrificial animals. So, God is swearing, He is promising to Abram using that cultural context that Abraham understands this is now a sure deal. This is going to happen. God has promised on his life that this covenant is going to happen. But what's really interesting now that we have the benefit of hindsight, right? We can look back. On the 3,000 odd years of history since this happened, you know, even more, 3,500, 3,700 years since this has happened. And we can see the really interesting history of Abraham's descendants. So, not only did God make uh, Abraham into a great nation through Isaac. But also we see the descendants of Abraham break their covenant against God. But what happens? God sends his suffering servant, his Messiah, who ends up dying like the Passover lamb, like a sacrificial animal. His body broken for us. And we get into the prophet Isaiah, you know, talking about by his stripes we are healed. So there's this immediate context of God promising to Abram, Abraham, this is a done deal. This is a sure thing. You are going to have a miracle son. He is going to survive to adulthood and he is going to have descendants. You're going to become a nation through your bloodline. Uh, But then also in the grand scheme of things, we have this suffering servant, this, this lamb of God, God's body broken because of the broken covenant. Um, and bringing us, ushering us into this time period of a new covenant founded by his blood. So really, really right. cool um, immediate fulfillment and long-term fulfillment. So yes. Yes, Janice, in a, in, a, in a couple of different ways. Awesome. Is the
1: answer to your question. Good.
0: Yeah. Okay. So Malak, for yes. you. Yes.
1: Let's move it. Go.
0: Moving on. In Genesis 18 and 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Derek asks this. Okay. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, why did God tell them not to look back? Also, why did God turn Lot's wife to a pillar of salt if he is all merciful?
1: Okay, so right off the cuff, the first thing is, the first question is, why did God tell, you know, them not to look back? This concept of looking back isn't like out of curiosity, being like, oh, like, you know, looking back because, you know, what, what does this look like when, you know, sulfur comes from the sky? Um, they're leaving the city. They're fleeing because the the city was so evil that it was going to be destroyed by God. God was judging this this city. So looking back at something, this notion of looking back is more so like a desire for what was. Like my home is there. My life was there. So you're looking back at something that was previously established, as if you desire to be the, to be. Mm-hmm. And so God, knowing their hearts, says, "Okay." Don't look back. So even though you have these feelings of like, you know, of course, everything's being destroyed. You really wish it wasn't being destroyed. You might have those feelings. God makes a really simple law, rule, I should say. Don't look back. And that's all you have to do. But because Lot's wife didn't listen and still looked back, still tried to satisfy those desires, she then, the consequence was the pillar of salt as we we saw, uh, as we read. So, Uh, The principle is God knows her heart, knows even how she feels about all these things. She still looks back at what was because she desires what was. And that was the problem. In my mind, I think that makes sense. Um, And so it's really not so much a matter of, you know, like I said, a a curiosity thing about what this looks like. Uh, God knows what they're going through, but he still issued a command not to do it. There was something to do with the destruction of the city that if you were to look back at it and desire to be of it, you would become like it. So I think that there's, um, God was simply applying the judgment that was happening to Sodom and Gomorrah onto Lot's wife because she wanted to be back. Yeah, definitely.
0: And there's this idea of you must flee for your lives or you too will be judged. Right. And that was very clearly laid out to Lot, his his wife, and his daughters, right? Uh, um, Because it says, with the coming of the dawn, the angels hurried Lot urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. Right. When he hesitated, so Lot was like, I, I don't right. know, like, should I believe these guys? I don't know, maybe I'll stay here. The men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them to safety out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. So God had already saved them once, from their hesitation right. he was like okay i'm getting you out of the city right but then the city was going to be destroyed but not only the city the plane and all of the cities around it so verse 17 as soon as they had brought them out one of the men one of them said flee for your lives don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain flee to the mountains or you will be swept away so right. this idea of you're still in danger if you stay in the plane this whole thing's coming down. You're not safe here. Right. You are not safe here. But Lot said to them, No, my Lord, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. He's like, that's too far. The right. mountains are too far. You've got to save at least one city, right? Look, here's a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well. I will, re- I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why this town was called Zor because Zor means small. So God makes two concessions right. for Lot and his family. They hesitate because they don't want to leave Sodom, so he pulls them out. Then doesn't follow instructions, will not flee to the mountains, so God saves a small one small town for them to live in, right? but Lot's wife just pushes it one far, and she hesitates while they're on the run, right. and does not escape.
1: Right, and so this idea here, to add to the second edge of this question, which is, uh, wh- how could God do this if he's all merciful? Well, it's like, well, there's still consequences for your actions. Like, God Absolutely. said this would be the case, and so all you have to do is, despite your feelings, yeah. not act on those feelings. And, so, and God,
0: in his mercy, had already made two concessions. That's right. He pulled them out of the city right. where they would have been destroyed. Right. And then he saved a small town, which was right. going to be destroyed.
1: And I think there's also a misunderstanding here of what mercy is. Because God's not merciful at the expense of justice. Like, he's not just like, nothing matters. Do whatever you want. Because that's, like, if you take that logic far enough, like, why doesn't God just let everyone do what they want and not do anything? Then yeah. all of a sudden there's no judgment. It's this concept of mercy is an opposition to judgment, but it's actually the opposite where it's like, mercy can only exist because judgment exists. Yeah. Um, So you have this, uh, I think this is a misunderstanding of what mercy is. So, you know, God had to, God said he was gonna do it. He told them about it in advance, right? So, and so it's, it still had to be the case. So if your heart is for something, you'll become like it. I think that's the principle to take out of there. And I think that answers the question.
0: Yeah, I think so too.
1: Let's move on. Sure. So Genesis 24, okay. this is a question from Linda. Why couldn't Isaac find his own wife? Or back then, did they marry for combining countries, et cetera? So you've talked about this, about like kings will marry to combine countries. You've already...
0: Oh, peace treaties. Just, yes. Yeah, peace treaties. So, um, yeah, yeah. It, like definitely arranged marriages were the norm. Um, people in the ancient world did not normally marry for love. Love was seen as developing between people. Um, but... Um, Isaac surely could have found his own wife, but, uh, so Genesis 24 tells us, it literally opens up, Abraham was now very old. So he's realizing, okay, he was already old when he had Isaac, but now he's very old. So Isaac is the heir. So what would have been happening is now that Isaac is an adult, Abraham would have been training him since he was very young to take over as the patriarch of the family for Abraham. So Isaac is actively engaged in running the household of Abraham. In fact, at this point, because Abraham, they make an emphasis that Abraham was very old, it's entirely possible that Isaac was mostly running everything and his dad was patriarch in name and final authority only. So for Isaac to leave the household of Abraham at this point and make an arduous journey to go find his own wife was probably not a very practical solution for for the household at that time, as well as the fact it may have been emotionally awful for Abraham right he's not wanting his right. son and and um sarai or sarah is passed on at this point because when rebecca um you know the servant goes uh you know back to aram and and makes the marriage arrangements uh, with Rebecca's family and Rebecca, and brings Rebecca back. The Bible has this really interesting comment that that, that when Isaac married Rebecca, he was finally comforted after the death. Of his mother so there was finally a matriarch back in the family because the matriarch of the family played a key role in running the household as well so when you lost a senior member of a household it was a big deal and there was a big hole so Rebecca stepped in and began to fulfill that role again so people generally didn't marry for love they married um, out of uh, Peace treaties, practicality, good family arrangements, um, and love was was believed to follow. It was something that was worked on. It was something that would come. Affection would develop. Right. Uh, yeah.
1: And, th- that and concept, I think there's
0: good reason right. why Isaac didn't go himself. Right. That concept of, of
1: marrying for love in advance actually comes a lot later. It, yeah. And in fact, what's really interesting is that Martin Luther, when he married his wife, it actually comes from, this uh this relationship that he has because he marries a nun right and at first you know it, the nuns like okay we're getting married because they, they stopped believing in the catholic church or whatever it was in their sacraments and the, their ideas so then martin luther marries a nun and martin luther at first was kind of like oh she's kind of contentious we're just gonna he's, He kind of doesn't know how yeah, he feels they, about they it
0: did, they weren't super affectionate that's right but then apparently. as
1: soon as they get married He's writing love letters and poetry about her. He's, he's super it. All yeah, so, of a
0: sudden, he's like, I but, love this woman.
1: <laughs> no. So, but after that, what happened was their love for each other, and especially Martin Luther's like, uh, expressions of love for her, ends <laughs> up stimulating this idea that you marry for love. Right. This actually goes down the pipeline later on, that you should marry people to love each other because that's going to create, create a binding relationship. And um, Man, so, it
0: has caused all sorts of problems, honestly. I know, like, it's true. Love is great and it is good and it, and it is important, but so are practical considerations. <laughs> practical considerations, spiritual considerations are important. Well,
1: yeah, you have to understand. I think it's also misunderstanding what love is today. Anyways, so there's a lot of things there, but that would be that. I have a question for you, Corey. Shoot. Moving on. Moving on. Exodus 14. This is from Silas G. And he's very appreciative of what we're doing. Corey, yeah, he says, I want you and Malak to know that your weekend show is superb. Thank you, Silas. Such insight in your approach to questions that I and many have developed as we read through the Bible each year. I believe that the Holy Spirit is revealing its mysteries even today. It is especially good that you and Malak offer an understanding of s- several sides to the question. Just a note that my wife, uh, that my wife Mary, has been watching Bible Discovery, Formula quick study, formerly known as Quick Study, and reading through the Bible since 1993. And I have been reading through the Bible since 2005. And each year I realize greater insight to God's word. Amen. Praise God. A couple questions concerning Exodus. Here we go. When did the Israelites regain yeast in their bread? Did the Middle East have yeast cells in the air as we do in the U.S.? And did the crossing of the Red Sea take months? Thousands of Israelites in their herds. Well done. Well done. Thank you. So that very nice words, Corey.
0: Very, very nice. What do you think? Hi, Silas Bunch and of Mary. Questions. It's nice, nice to be able to address you by name. Very cool. Okay, so good questions. Uh, when did Israel the Israelites regain yeast in the bread? When they would have um, settled around Mount Sinai. So it went, once they go in the desert and they're not traveling around a ton, they would have time to allow their bread to develop yeast. Um, so the idea when, you know, of course, when they're leaving Exodus, they're do, in the Exodus, they're leaving Egypt in the Exodus, they're traveling very quickly. So they're bringing, um, you know, ingredients with them, but not having time to let the bread sit and settle and ferment and all of those good things. But they are camped around Mount Sinai for about a year. So at that point, they've got plenty of time to develop that bread. Um, did the Middle East have yeast cells in the air as we do in the U.S.? absolutely everywhere on planet earth as far as i'm aware has yeast cells in the air which is so so cool you can also harvest yeast off of um fruit that hasn't that has not been treated so i've seen people do this with grapes for example so like the um um grape stems uh you know if you grow grapes in your backyard uh, pull those grapes off you can soak the stems in water and harvest yeast from that. And of course, just leaving uh, a bread starter out on the counter and feeding it every day, uh, it will cause it to ferment and it's that yeast in there. And then once you have that starter, as long as you're feeding it and kind of babying it a little bit, you're good to go, which I mean, the ancient world knew this and utilized this as well. So absolutely they were harvesting yeast from the air, although they wouldn't have called it yeast, but they knew that it worked. (laughs) And so that was that, you know, it it is what it is. It's not like the store bought yeast that we buy today, more like sourdough. So they may not have known what I, what I mean by they wouldn't have called it yeast. Of course they had a word for it, uh, that we translate yeast, but they may not have known all of the scientific, uh, we, they didn't have telescopes that so they could see that the, the microbes working in little yeast bacteria working, but they did know the process to make it work. Uh, okay. So that's that about bread. Did the crossing of the Red Sea take months? No. It appears to have taken a night. So we have this, we have this idea. I think from um, the movie, The Ten Commandments, uh, we have this idea of this huge sea, this huge. But in reality, it wasn't huge, huge. So, um, it was just huge. Hours. It Wasn't was it
1: huge, huge. It was big. It's, yes, it's just funny.
0: It's uh, you know deep enough water to get it's in funny into trouble. Funny for a
1: measurement. I was just laughing. Just but teasing. it's
0: not like an ocean. Yeah. Yeah. So and and people in the ancient world walked a lot. They were used to walking. Yeah. You can cover a lot of distance uh, in several hours, even a large group of people. Right. Uh, so, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think yeah, there was tons of Israelites who crossed that night. But yeah, one night that, that sounds good to me.
0: Yeah, and it I, doesn't seem as if they were walking in single file. Right. Right. They would have had. They would have been walking on mass. Yes. it Sounds like.
1: That's why, yeah, people might be thinking, oh, it's a, you know, we watch the movies. It's Tiny. a very tight, tight thing. it's Well, it could have been huge. It could have been yes. like, you, know, you don't know how wide the the wind was blowing. So really interesting.
0: Yeah, but when you look at chapter 14 and, and how how it's worded, it does appear to have been a night. Yes. A night, because it says that God had caused the wind to blow all that night. Mm-hmm. Um but then during the last watch of the night, which is verse 24, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. And then he jams their chariot wheels and has Moses on the other side stretch his hand back over. And right. of course the water comes back. Which back. would
1: just happen naturally from just going in that water, like that kind of like sand. Yeah. Right. Yep. Cool.
0: But it was miraculous because it didn't do that for the Israelites, but it right. did do that for the Egyptians. So right. there's still a very miraculous element even to that.
1: Right. Cool.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, I think I have a question for sure. you on the next page on my, on my next page here. Okay. Yes. Um, this one is from Exodus and Numbers. Okay. So okay. it's, it's, it's a question that is less specific about a verse and more in general. Okay. So this is from Brian. He says, um, a friend asked me how God could be against abortion but then kill the Egyptian babies? I didn't know how to answer. Also, why does God seem more harsh in the Old Testament than the new? For example, consuming Aaron's sons in fire, or if someone touched the Ark of the Covenant, they would die. God right. bless you all, Brian.
1: Okay. Uh, so first off, let's answer the first question. Yeah. How could God be against abortion and then kill the Egyptian babies? Okay, well, first off, because I'm assuming this is about the plague of the firstborn. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely um, the 10th plague.
1: So we're not called to kill people. We're not called to murder people. I think that's just the way it's, it's laid out. So the idea here is that God is the only arbiter of life and death. God is in complete control. Don't take life and death into your own hands. That's to play God. That's essentially in the, the skinny of it. So God can, like it says an angel of death comes over, an angel of the Lord, I think, it even says, of de- uh, uh, kills the, the baby. So God can kill God permits death to exist. I think if you extend that logic too far, it's like, why does God allow death to exist at all? Yeah. Um, I think that's really where that goes. Um, but apart from that question, which is way bigger of a topic, uh, how could God be against abortion and kill babies? Because God doesn't want us to kill people. He doesn't want us to... It's not our job. Our job's not to, to murder people. So I think it's really that God, simple. And,
0: and God, to that point, that is god's realm yeah he is, it is the giver of life and he is the taker of life right like human life specifically is god's realm right so god is allowed to decide we are not
1: that's right now obviously god is merciful so if someone does something like has an abortion or kills a child like if someone is truly repentant and sincerely repentant if that's right then god you know god will be with that person god will save that person so, and they had to live that life of repentance. Anyways, apart from that, um, uh, why does God seem more harsh in the Old Testament than the New? Well, there's times, consider the time when, um, who, who, what was his name, uh, lied to Peter and then dropped dead.
0: Um, yeah. Ananias and Sapphira. Thank
1: you, I was thinking yeah. Ananias, I was like, hopefully that's not, the, right, right, not yeah. the wrong name. Anyways, so yeah, so you have these incidences when in, even in the New Testament where something seems rather harsh because they were lying to God, uh, right? Not to, to man, that was the principle. And so they drop dead right there. Um, but also, it, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, you go. I was going
0: to say. Also, consider um, where is it in the New Testament? First, I'm having a, a brain freeze. Where they're talking about the um, eating of the Lord's supper, and Paul says, Corinthians. "Some of you, it, yes, yes, in Corinthians, um, some of you are sick and dying." even. Right. Because you are disobeying like you are you're practicing the Lord's supper you're handling it incorrectly. Yes. So people were sick and dying in the church at Corinth and they had not associated that with judgment from God, but it was. Right. Judgment from God. So there's this idea that God may still be judging in in this way, we are just no longer associating it with that. Um uh, now this is a this is a tricky I know this is a tricky balance because what I'm not saying is that we as Christians should see every flood, every storm, every natural disaster, every disease as judgment from God. That would be making the mistake of Job's friends, right? Right. But the in, in the Old Testament time period, and to a certain extent, the, the Jews of the New Testament rather than the Gentiles of the New Testament, they saw the physical world as very tied to the spiritual world. So whenever a judgment would happen, like even even take a look at it in Samuel, when there was a famine happening, David would go to God and he would go, why? Why is this famine happening? And God would say, well, Saul went against the covenant or right. you went against the covenant. This is what's going on. Um, so the, the, the spiritual world is tied to the physical world in a way that makes us very uncomfortable in the West. But at the same time, it's also, I, I, there's a balance that you have to strike with. You can't call everything a judgment from God if you don't know. Right. <laughs> if you don't know.
1: That's right. And I think, so to go to that, why does God seem more harsh in the Old Testament than the New? Um, I don't think that he is. I think there's just more grace is abound because Jesus Christ has died. But at the same time, again, um, I think that there's elements that God is still judging. God is still you know, judging the souls of people. So, uh, but God, I think, because of Jesus Christ's sacrificial death, is showing himself, and it's specifically, um, not even so much Exodus, as much as it is Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, that God appear, appears more harsh. Because even in Genesis, God does not appear as harsh. Yep. Right, you see what I'm saying? So it's not just the Old Testament. It's only in select places God appears more harsh, specifically with those who are, who are abiding in the covenant.
0: Absolutely. Right. Because he had He had a very specific covenant arrangement with yes. Israel that was physical. Right. It was for, it was a land grant. It was for the physical land, parcel of land of Israel, right? So there mm. was that one-to-one connection. Yeah. Um, whereas now we are under the new covenant with Christ and it is not if we don't have a physical landmass that we are growing now as the kingdom of God, we are building the spiritual kingdom of God for the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, which will be God's physical kingdom as well as spiritual kingdom, but it's different now. uh, So that point is well taken. But in terms of his character, his character has not changed. Yes. The, The character of God has not changed. Also consider that the Old Testament covers a lot more time than the New Testament does, right. so there's a lot more examples for us of the character of God in the Old Testament than there than there is in the New Testament, simply because of the mass amount of time that the Old Testament covers versus the New. Right. So all of these different considerations.
1: That's right. Or oh, I think that that pretty much hits it. Sure. Well, oh, here, let me get you with the next one, okay? Okay. Uh, this is from Jason B. It's regarding Levi- in Leviticus 14, God commands the plaster of the walls in a house should be scraped. Yeah. Weren't the Israelites in the tents at this time? Please explain. Thank you for your ministry. God bless.
0: Yes. Okay. So um, the Israelites, this is a practical question. So the Israelites were not supposed to stay at Mount Sinai. They were not supposed to stay in the wilderness living in tents. The land grant that was given to them through the covenant that they made with God at Mount Sinai was for Israel, the land of Israel, which was at that time, the land of Canaan. So the law is largely looking forward to the time when Israel is settled in the land of Canaan. So they live for 40 years in the wilderness because of course we know the rest of the story, right? They get to the edge of the promised land in the in the allotted time they're they're getting ready to go in and the people refuse to go in because they're scared of the people of Canaan because there's great warriors in the land and they don't believe God uh, that, that he is actually going to deliver the land over them they think that this is a weird ploy that God brought them there to be judged to die in battle. And so the people refuse to go in. Um, They're chastised by Moses and God. And then they decide to, okay, fine, we'll go in uh, without God. And of course they get slaughtered because it was only by the power of God that they were going to be able to overtake the land. It was going to be a miracle. The, The armies of heaven uh, we're going to be fighting with Israel, and so then they go into this wilderness wandering period of forty years. So, yes, at that time they were living in tents, but the law was looking forward to the establishment of the people in the land of Israel, where they would be living in houses that they plastered. That's good. Yeah. So. Yes. There's that. That's good. I think that answers it.
1: I think so. I have Thanks nothing to that really. a question, much... Jason. Yeah. It's
0: it, it's it's good to look at details like that because it can be confusing. Um, if we don't stop to pull back and look at the broader context. Right. For sure.
1: All right, let me ask you, no, let me just ask you the final two questions. Here's one from uh, uh, LD. Why did God send an evil spirit to King Saul? And this is regarding 1 Samuel 16, 14. Let me read it for you. Sure.
0: Let me okay, go so. go through it as well.
1: Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. I'm just going to continue reading. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit uh, from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to the servants, provide me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And then they said, they go on to say, David can play well, etc." So the question is, why did God send an evil spirit to King Saul?
0: I'd love for you to weigh on this as well. Um, one of the things that I would say was, so there's, there's two, two main things that I want to say. First, we know that Saul was empowered with the spirit of God for the task of kingship, right? So now God empowers Saul for judgment. God has, Saul has brought judgment upon himself by rejecting God and by rejecting the spirit of God willfully that was on him for this task. In fact, he used the spirit of God to do very ungodly things. Mm. You know, when you go back into 1 Samuel 12 and 13, where he's building monuments in his own name, just very foolish. Israel was called to go in and take down monuments.
1: And those monuments are idolatry, basically. Yes. yes, So everyone's clear. It's not like a modern monument. Yes. Yes.
0: And now Saul's establishing them himself. He has become the enemy of Israel. So God is now bringing about the demise of Saul. And unfortunately, it's going to be very public. As as the public leader of Israel, his downfall is going to be public. As the first leader of Israel, there's also this really interesting thing going on, which is something that this is the second thing that I want to bring our attention to is that i believe it's i believe it's pretty explicit in the text that saul while a real historical person was also chosen by god to be a microcosm if that's the right word of israel so saul's life the way that it plays out is very similar to the way that the nation of israel plays out so you know, I did a Bible study on this and there's there's a lot of details that I can't get into, but essentially we see Saul making a covenant with God, starting out really well, but then using the giftings of God to engage in self-worship and idolatry, being tormented by evil spirits because of this idolatry and eventually being destroyed. They become the very thing That they were called in this world to defeat, which was the evil of idolatry. They were carved to create the kingdom of God and instead turn the kingdom of God into the kingdom of idols. And so Saul does. Now, okay, I said two things, but one more thing. The third thing um, that that I think is really helpful to understanding this is God has David get a front row seat to this evil spirit infecting Saul. This is really important because David knows that he, at this point, he knows he has been anointed the next king of Israel. So he is watching the absolute mental and spiritual and physical decline of the man whose job he's taking. And Saul is only experiencing this physical and mental and spiritual decline because he's the leader of Israel and he failed at it. So David gets to watch what happens when you reject the spirit of God and the spirit of God rejects you. David gets this front row seat, which is why I think later in David's life when he sins so spectacularly, he commits adultery, he murders, it's terrible. In Psalm 51 that he writes to God after this, what's his heart cry? Please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. That's an interesting thing for him to say because he's had a front row seat to Saul having the Holy Spirit removed from him and an evil spirit coming on him. So I think there's a lot of things at play here. He's representing Israel kind of as a whole. And it's also very instructive for David. And it's bringing judgment on Saul's very egregious sin. So those are the three things. I think those are really
1: you? good points. I think also just to add to that, God is willing that everyone comes to repentance. In other words, send him a tormenting spirit. At any time, Saul could repent. At That's any true. time, Saul could just be like, I, I can't handle this anymore. I repent. Um, and he doesn't do it. So I think that to add to those points, it's not just that just god's creating uh you know uh, a story for for david or not just those things um but it's really to bring saul to his knees yeah. which he does not do um
0: i think that's a good point because it's not as if this tormenting spirit was on saul all the time right. we know that people who were gifted with the spirit of god could cast so, this spirit off yes david who had the spirit of god he could, his presence and his words in praising God could cast the spirit away. That's right. So that's, that's true. You know, Saul could have stayed in the presence of God and...
1: Repented. Repented. And so even in that torment though, hearing and being a part of that, like, there's just, there's something to that. that I think it's, it's not just that, you know, God's doing this, you know, just because he's done with Saul. Like, so there is a level there, I think, that we have to keep in mind that... um, he is removed from king, but he's still alive. He's still a person. So I think that God's giving everyone ample opportunity to come to him, and people just reject it. People would rather be, you know, their own idols, like build his own monuments. So I think that, so why did God send an evil spirit to King Saul? Uh, for all the reasons listed <laughs> <laughs> yeah, above. Yeah, yeah. so I think there's a lot of reasons, and plus more. Um, and you, you, you could even think about it in the concept of why would God, pr- pr- like, it's really about God permitting. It's not like God is doing the evil itself. Mm. And specifically here, it says a tormenting spirit. Yeah. It's not like it's God's making making Saul sin here. Um, it is strictly tormenting him so that he's not thinking things right. He's not uh, behaving right. And he knows that there's something wrong and he needs to be, he needs rightness in his life. Yeah. He needs clarity. And that's what David brings. So... Um, in those moments of clarity, he has time to repent and he doesn't. And then when David, and then he even tries to kill David uh, out of his jealousy. So it's a very sad thing. But anyways, that would be that. Let me ask you the last question, Corey. Sure. To kind of cap things off. Um, hi, this is uh, from, I can't even say that. Tola Banjo JP? Yep. <laughs> okay. That's it. Hi, 40-43. Corey and Matt. <laughs> Please look into the question for me. 2 Samuel 14, 27 says that Absalom has sons and a daughter named Tamar. But 2 Samuel 18.18 says Absalom made a monument in his name because he has no children. Is this before he had children then? That's the question.
0: It may have been before he had these children, but I don't think that's the most likely explanation. I think the most likely explanation is that his sons died, uh, which was super common. Um, That's why leaders... Generally, would try to have as many kids as possible, but also we have to remember that um, Absalom launched a rebellion against David, and he may have had his children fighting with him, and they may have died. Um, so, uh, specifically having no son, it doesn't—it doesn't say that Tamar died, but Tamar would not carry on her father's lineage. Right, she would marry in that ancient patriarchal system. She would marry, and she would carry on her husband's lineage that's just the way that it worked Mm. so he didn't have any sons left alive so whether they died um early on uh which could happen with childhood illnesses and 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 all the different things that went on whether they died in warfare i think the most likely explanation is that they died when they were young
1: yeah i think what's important here is that some people come up with these things and i'm not accusing this person of this but sometimes people come up with these questions because they think that there's a contradiction afoot. But it's just not what the Bible's, the Bible's not talking about Absalom's kids. It's not really concerned with that. So it's like, it's not being like, oh, here's the historical accuracy of Absalom's life. Let's write a biography in Absalom because you need to know his biography so it doesn't contradict things that are written later about him. It's like, it's assuming a fluid story that you're not like, oh, when it says later on, he had no children. It's assuming that something happened to the kids that were possibly there. So it's not contradicting itself. It's yeah. just assuming that you're, one, giving the benefit of the doubt that they're writing in a certain way, uh, that they're writing to – that's not the main point is to talk about Absalom's family life. So it's just quickly going over it. But it's also not the main point of the history. It's yeah. to get into history and the way we interpret history.
0: Yeah. And or it's, or it, yeah,
1: write history, I should say.
0: Yeah. And I think the, the reason why it's mentioned – in second Samuel 18 is because when when kings were buried they would have a tomb in, in like in a specific area in Jerusalem but then their their children would continue on the family line and and reigning and stuff like that and so the idea is that he created this monument and he was going to be buried there as well as the king's son but of course he isn't buried there he's buried in the forest where he died and a pile of rocks is erected over him as a memorial as a monument so they're just, they're going like, his, his monument is still there to this day, but he's not buried there. He's buried in the forest ingloriously with a pile of rocks over him. So
1: I think that's good. Corey, that's all the questions. We did it. We did I,
0: it. I, you know, that was a good catch-up ses- session yes. for us. Yeah. Good catch-up, guys. Good. Okay, so... I think the moral of the story is that if you have any more Bible questions that you've thought of since, please pop them in the comment section below because every once in a while, if we don't receive viewer questions about uh, a a week worth of scripture that we're dealing with, we can do another one of these and just answer random viewer questions about the Bible and Christianity. That's right. Yeah. Good? And
1: ready for the secret big question?
0: I'm not sure, actually. Yeah. Honestly, not sure. What is it?
1: All right. What was the most interesting question?
0: The most interesting question today. Yeah. What, what did... I, I'm trying to remember what we even... Yeah. At, I don't know. I, I, like, I like looking at these technical questions. Yes. I like all of them. What do you think the most interesting I'm going to go
1: with Terrence's question. Was Eve was Eve created on the sixth day? i got to give okay. I'm to give Terrence the win. I was so Terrence side. the win? <laughs> I was so side psyched by it, but I'm gonna go with that one. That was the one I think I enjoyed the most.
0: Okay, right. I I always enjoy me a Saul question because I think he is one of the most interesting yes. figures yeah, of the Old really Testament right. personally to me. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna nominate LB for a runner-up. Think that's Linda of the most Linda Dean. Okay,
1: cool. That's it. That's our big question. I think.
0: <laughs> okay, guys, if you have any comments or questions, pop them down below. And until next week, happy reading and studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.